don't see the time ticking. There we go. Finally, we see the time ticking. So, here we are, abnormal psychology. We're now going to start chapter three. Last we talked about historical perspectives, how we view abnormality historically. Now we're going to look at our contemporary views of how we look at abnormality today. All right? Keep in mind that 100 years from now, these could be historical views, and maybe we'll have some brand new way of looking at it. But this is the best we have right now. So let's go ahead and take a look at these contemporary frameworks. All right? Now we can break it down into four different kinds of areas. One is the psychoanalytic theory. This is going to be Sigmund Freud. And Sigmund Freud came around the same time as Pavlov and Edward Thorndike and a lot of the other famous folk that we're talking. So Darwin's around during this time. So again, these are some of the, the current models or frameworks. So psychoanalytic approach, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about behavior approaches. Those directly came from Pavlov and Edward Thorndike, so we'll talk about those. We'll talk about biological approaches. Those came from the organic beliefs. And then we're going to talk about the humanistic existential approaches. All right? One of the things to keep in mind before we get into this chapter, and I did take a look at it and, and tried to say, okay, can I trim it down a little bit? It's about 53 slides. That's a little long. I didn't really like that. And I thought I could trim it down, but I felt like, you know what? There's some really good information in here. And these are kind of like my, my teaching notes. So I'm really sharing my notes with you when I share them in PowerPoint today. Um, and I didn't want to forget any of this stuff, so I kept it in here. But keep in mind that each one of these four approaches we're about to talk about um, views the source of abnormal behavior differently and presents different basis for treatments. So I'm going to let you know that before we even get into therapy, that this is the way this works. If you believe there's multiple causes for behavior, first off, right? We all agree with that. Like you could be influenced by heredity, or you could be influenced by environment, or you could be influenced by your peers, right? Or you could be influenced by those who taught you, right? So there's a lot of different influences. So these models all have different perspectives on what caused the abnormal behavior. And the way this works is if you believe it's caused by biological reasons, then the treatment has to be biological. Right? If you believe it's caused by unconscious forces, then the treatments have to be geared to look at the unconscious forces. If you believe that it's caused by learning, then the treatment follows. It has to break the learning or cause you to learn new things. So whatever the foundation is, whatever you believe the belief is of that abnormal behavior, the treatment follows. And there's a lot of different explanations for where abnormal behavior comes from. So the big key is, did you pick the right cause? If you pick the right cause, treatment's going to be successful. You pick the wrong cause, you're going to struggle. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to look at these approaches, and then eventually we'll, we'll look at therapy as part of it. So let's talk about the first one, Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud's around turn of the century, 1900s. If you look at his therapy approach, his therapy approach is called psychoanalysis. You're analyzing someone's psychological state. 
A good way to remember that that's Freud, and I always tell all my classes this, is right in the word, word, the middle of the word psychoanalysis is four letters, right? Right in the middle of the word psychoanalysis is anal. A lot of people thought Freud was an ass, so maybe a good way to remember psychoanalysis is Freud is as soon as you see that word anal right there in the middle, you go, it's Freud. That was his therapy approach. Now, a broader perspective, when you include Freud and all the people he influenced, then we talk psychodynamic. This idea that it's psychological, dynamic psychological factors that are affecting a person's behavior. That's a broader perspective. It includes not just Freud, but then all the post-Freudians, all the neo-Freudians, people that came after him. So just letting you know. So here we go, let's, let's look at what his theory says. These are the fundamental pieces. Number one, that in, un, in order to understand abnormal behavior, you must understand the underlying motives, drives, emotions, fantasies, and conflicts that are underneath it. So the only way to understand abnormal behavior is to understand these items, right? Drives, motives, emotions, fantasies. Why is the person acting hysterical? What benefit are they getting from it? Freud believed that these symptoms are seen um, far more on the surface. They're not deep-rooted necessarily. I mean, they might have deep-rooted causes, but they're surface symptoms. That's why they're transient. That's why they pop from one thing to another. They're not... It's, again, you know, I'm not blind necessarily because some specific reason, but more some transient idea. That psychological symptoms are like physical conditions or symptoms. They can only be understood and treated by identifying the cause. Like, okay, I can treat some of the symptoms, but if you don't fix the infection, it's going to come right back. So, again, the symptoms are surface. What's the cause deep underneath? That's what I need to get to. Right? The challenge is it's not easy to see the pathological conditioning by only looking at surface symptoms. Like I can see things on the surface, those are on the top, the symptoms that you're showing, but that's not necessarily an indication of what's really going on underneath. It's not a one-to-one -one connection. Because human beings are too, we're too off the wall. We, we change things often, so there's not consistency there. And he said the basis of all irrational behavior is unconscious motivation that's disguised outside of awareness and difficult to access. So the cause of irrational behavior, according to Freud, is unconscious conflicts, fantasies, motives, drives, all that. Any questions? All right. So here's the basics the basic key pieces of Freud's theory. Number one, we're gonna talk about the unconscious. The unconscious is stuff that's underneath the surface, hidden from your awareness. If you've ever done something, you go, man, I, don't, I can't believe I just did that. Why did I do that? Well, because somewhere you had some drive, some urge, some instinct that caused you to wanna to do that. Number two, the sexual basis of psychological symptoms. Freud came about in a time when sex was not discussed openly. It was the Victorian age. 
a lot of repression of sexuality. A lot of the clients he saw were women. And they, they you know, had drives and desires and needs. But of course, in his eyes, they weren't being met. And so these drives would then come out part way. He talked about the libido, the sexual desire or instinctual desire. And remember that Darwin at the time, right? Darwin would have talked about natural selection that we're all driven to procreate. so that we survive. That's our, that's our desires to survive, however we do that. Freud believed that anxiety and defense mechanisms were also a big key factor in here, that people would get anxious and then they would do things, defense mechanisms, to protect themselves from anxiety. We'll talk more about it as we go through. He talked about the structure of the mind and in his eyes, the mind was broken into three pieces. One was the id, one was the ego, and one was the superego, and we'll talk about that. He talked about the stages of psychosexual development, and this is probably where Freud deviated from mainstream just far enough that, um, unfortunately, some of Freud's theories are discredited, or not really discredited, but not really supported. Um, they seem a little extreme, a little too over-focused on sex. Yes, sex is important, it's a driving force, we got that. Violence is too, but there's more than that. And then finally, what Freud believed is that neurotic symptoms really had childhood origins, that they started in, as childhood conflicts that could not be met. So let's talk about this sexual basis of psychological symptoms. Freud helped patients explore deeper and deeper into their hidden and disguised basis of their symptoms, and he believed that sexual conflict was a core. Again, people weren't talking about it. He believed that it was sexual um, you know, conflict that people were dealing with um, that might have even been at the core of hysteria that, of course, you know, Jean Martin was studying. Initially, believe it or not, Freud believed that all of his patients actually experienced some kind of sexual attack and that's what made them the way they are. In other words, some kind of sexual abuse, some kind of sexual attack. Later, he changed it and he came to believe that a patient as a young child maybe imagined that such an event could occur. Now, I'm going to assume, I'm going to walk out on a ledge here, probably had clients coming in saying that they were abused by their spouse or that they were, you know, you know sexually assaulted. You know, back in the day, we go back into ancient law, we'll talk about this in chapter 16, there was the rule of thumb. Um, women were property. As a male, you could beat your wife as long as the stick was not bigger than your thumb. In other words, the diameter of your thumb. So that's where the rule of thumb comes in. So, the, I mean, this is the time period. So Freud believed he'd see patients come in. I, I guarantee you they were abused. Probably they, uh, rape, probably, spousal rape. I mean, you know, back in the day, they wouldn't have talked about that. So he's got people coming in saying all this stuff. He believes the core. But then he probably had some people come in going, no, no, I was never abused. 
Never. That's never happened, but I'm still, you know, messed up or whatever. And I'm sure that part of it, because of his theme, he said, well, then you must have imagined, you know, somehow. And that's what's causing conflicts today. The two ideas developed from this basis, and one was the libido, that's the instinctual sexual instinct that we have that really is the basis for all motivated behavior. He said, no matter what you do, you're doing it for sexual reasons. Why did you get up and brush your teeth today? So you could be more appealing to the opposite sex. Why did you take a shower? Why did you dress up? Why did you come to class? Why are you working hard for a degree? So you could become more desirable from a sexual... I mean, I know it sounds kind of corny, but that's what Freud believed. That sex drove everything. This life-death instinct. And the other one was the Oedipus complex. Now, here's what I'm going to tell you. This wasn't Freud's idea originally. People always go, I can't believe Freud thought this up. No, no, no. Freud was a physician. He was well-educated. He had gone to college and medical school. He had studied the classics of, again, myths and and mythology, one of the things, you know, you guys are studying your classes today, you might take a class on mythology and you go, what's that have to do with, you know, business? Oh, believe it or not. So in Freud's case, he had taken these, he'd been a good reader of, you know, the classics. He believed that the Oedipal complex was another issue going on, and we'll talk about that as we go through. So here it is. The Oedipal complex is based on this idea of what's called sexual attraction to the opposite sex parents accompanied by feelings of competition antagonism towards the same sex parent. So there's a Greek myth called Oedipus, it's the, the it's Oedipus Rex, the story of Oedipus Rex. I won't go super in depth on it, but I'll go a little bit. I'll give you the Reader's Digest version. Oedipus Rex is a story of a king and a queen who uh, she becomes pregnant, and uh, one of the prophets, this, you know, soothsayers or whatever, comes in and, and says, this child shall be your undoing. Well, of course, I'm the king, right? I'm the king. I'm not going to have some brand new child undo my kingdom and my power. So he told his soldiers to take this baby out, kill it. How do you think that went over with his wife? Yeah, not great. He's kind of a jerk. Right? And that's a nice term. So, of course, she begs and pleads, please, to the soldiers, don't take him and kill him. They're not really into the idea of going and killing a baby just because the king said so. So they drag him off to a foreign way land, this baby, and they drop him off. And then they come back. They tell the king the deed is done. So now, of course, the king's a tyrant. He can do anything now. He killed his own son, for God's sakes. And his wife, you can imagine. So the boy grows up in this faraway land, decides he wants to go out and seek adventure and find out his origins. And, you know, of course, he knows nothing about his background. So he goes and starts, you know, traveling across the countryside, comes into a battle with uh, a person, a king. They fight. He kills the king. He rides further into town, and of course the queen comes running up, you saved us from that bastard. Thank you, thank you, thank you. He falls in love with the queen. They have sex. He finds out it's his mom, and he carves his eyes out. Tragic end. Like Greek tragedy. 
So Freud is trained. He says, you know what? wonder if kids imagine, like they have a desire for their opposite sex parent. Right? So I have a sexual desire. Remember, sex drives everything. I have a desire. My libido takes over. It doesn't have to make sense. Sex isn't about making sense. It's about just doing. Right? So what he believed is that we all have this desire. That young kids have a desire for their opposite sex parent, but their same sex parent already has that parent, so there's a competition, and of course there's a, you don't want to get into this battle, this antagonistic battle with, you know, your same-sex parent, so it creates all this angst and conflict. Children had to deal with this, you know, children who had an especially strong Oedipal conflict um, were vulnerable to re-arousal of that conflict and ineffective repressed defense mechanisms in adolescence. So if you never really dealt with it in childhood and it was really strong, this urge for your same-sex parent or for your opposite-sex parent, if, if it was really you know, strong, that would re-emerge. It would come up over and over again in adolescence. It would come over and over again. So that's what he believed. The result, according to Freud, is they could be symptoms of psychological disorders. So that's what's happening, according to Freud. And by the way, you see these two terms, castration anxiety and penis envy. Those were terms he came up with based on this idea. When we talk about his stages, I'll talk more about where those terms fit in. And it's these terms that really get Freud in trouble. I mean, I'm just being honest with you. This idea. I mean, sex, we got that. Sex drives, sex sells, all that. Now we get to, I want my opposite sex parent, really? But again, it wasn't his idea originally, really. Anxiety and defense, let's talk about this. Anxiety and defense mechanisms, how we protect ourselves from anxiousness. Anxiety is a powerful and unpleasant emotion which serves as a signal that warns us of some impending doom or danger. And the danger could be internal or external. Like if there's smoke that rolls in under the door here in this classroom, is that gonna create anxiety? yeah, it's going to create anxiety, considering that's the only door out of this classroom. Smoke rolls in underneath it. I'm I'm a little anxious. Right? So that's external. Perceived threat of, you know, uh, of some physical injury can be significant. Now, Freud went to say that sometimes those external threats in childhood, what was maybe a threat of a loss of love, your parent says, I don't love you anymore, and the parent feels this loss of love, that's an external threat. Of course, that can create you know, significant issues. And then the danger could be internal, some disturbing instinctual impulses that threaten to break the awareness, or break into awareness, and possibly be expressed in overt behavior. I'm trying to think of a good example of this one. Say you're walking down the street, you see someone that for whatever reason is so attractive to you. They're so desirable. And what you really want to do is run over and just have your way with them. But that's inappropriate. You can't do that. That creates angst. You can't just go and take and do. You, you got to think about that. So again, maybe you have some kind of disturbing thing, some some odd sexual behavior you want to do and you're afraid that it's going to break through and that creates anxiety. 
So that's internal danger versus external danger. What Freud believed is that we develop things called defense mechanisms to protect ourselves. These are strategies to prevent anxiety arousing impulses from entering our awareness or being overtly expressed in ways that might evoke retaliation. So here are just some of them, you know, and you can see here's reality. What these defense mechanisms do is they put up a wall, they protect the person. So let me run with this example. You're walking down the street, you have a desire, you know, this desire of, of you know, passion, infatuation, whatever. But then you say in the back of your head, oh, I can't do this. This is inappropriate. You know, I'm in a relationship. I'm married. Or maybe you say, um, you, you know, it's, it's not appropriate for me to just run across the street and take someone, you know, just because that's what I want. Society says, no. we have all these reasons. We can try to, you know, intellectualize why, but that doesn't change the anxiety underneath. So it, it protects us on the surface, but it doesn't get rid of it, you know. So here are some of them. Repression. You push down your desire of what you really want to do. You really want to go and, and, and do something, but you don't. Reaction formation, you do just the opposite of what you really want to do. So what you really want to do is, you know, you know, I don't know, have sex with this person, so now you just ignore them. You don't have anything to do with them whatsoever. Don't even want to talk to them. Just the opposite. All you wanted was them, now you don't want anything with them. Isolation. Pull yourself away, remove yourself from the situation. Projection. They wanted me. Their fault, not mine. I didn't do it. Why did you fail the test? Bailey's too hard. It's his fault. He's a jerk. He wrote a bad test. Well, it's not because you didn't study. It's because it's his fault. It's much easier to point the finger than to take a look at where the other point fingers are pointing, right? And then the last one is displacement, too. That's, again, putting on somebody else as opposed to yourself. So these are these automatic kind of processes that Freud said we use. And by the way, every single person in here uses defense mechanisms. At least once in your life you've used them. And on their own, they're not bad. They protect you immediately. Bill Clinton is president of the United States. They say, did you have sexual relations with this person? He said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. I didn't do it. Hillary, come get me, right? So again, his automatic response is to lie. Here's the evidence. There's a blue dress for God's sakes. But he's going to lie even when the evidence is right there. Do you think he thought about that? No, he just did it because he's got to protect himself. And then sometimes what we know is defense mechanisms don't hold up over time, so then we have to go, okay, well, maybe I... So again, it's even healthy for people to use defense mechanisms occasionally. But when we use them excessively, then it becomes problems. Then what happens is it interferes with more healthy coping strategies. And we need healthier coping strategies to deal with life. We're going to talk about the structure of personality. Oh, you know what? No, we're not. We're going to stop right here.
because I'm looking up at the time and we're a few minutes to the end of class and I don't really want to get into the id ego and super ego unless we have enough time. So today I'm going to let you guys go a little bit early. However, here's what I'm going to tell you. On Wednesday, if I need to, we may stay a few minutes over. Is that fair? Just to wrap up everything because I want to make sure that I get part two. As well. I don't want to have three parts for this chapter. Sound fair? Awesome. All right, so this is the end of part one. We will have part two uh, next class. Thanks for listening.